the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work as it is written. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also it's overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Let's pray. Father in heaven, my prayer for us is that you, by the power of your spirit, that you would be near to us and even in a text that will challenge many of us, that you would, that we would see Christ, that you, Jesus, you and your great work for us would be the motivating factor for everything that we do in our lives. That may that be the resounding truth. May we not walk away from this sermon seeing dollar signs and be reminded of offerings, but may we walk away from this service having our hearts deeply saturated in the goodness of you, Jesus, and your great gift you have done for us that has been displayed in the cross. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Um, Goodness. So, man, let me first and foremost, I'll, I'll start here by saying that if you are new to the Point Community Church, maybe you've only been attending, maybe this is your first time, maybe you're visiting with us, and to you I say welcome, and maybe you've only been attending for a short, short time, and maybe you have just in your, in your history or maybe one of your fears about church is that you would come to a church and that they would always be talking about money that I hear that out there. I mean, I have real conversations with real people who have, have, aren't part of churches or maybe they were part of churches or maybe they just have misconceptions about the church. And one of their fears is, is that churches always talk about money. And so for us here at the Point Community Church, I, we don't always talk about money. In fact, um, in a couple of months, I will, have, I will be celebrating my eighth year as the primary preaching pastor of the Point Community Church which is ridiculous on so many levels. First, it's ridiculous that it feels like it would be that long that we've been together for seven years. And second, that God would be so richly gracious to me and that you guys would take a chance on a joker like me. I've never, 
pastored in this capacity before my life. I don't have a master's degree from seminary. I, whenever I, when I came here, I'd not preached every week and that you guys would tolerate me and my family and not just that, that we could experience the great grace that is um, here in this room. And being able to be one of your pastors is such a joy to me. But even this week, as I thought about like how often have I preached on in seven plus years, how often have I preached on giving? And I think there's one other sermon that was specifically about money or about giving. And in fact, we, we shrink back, I think, sometimes in talking about that, that we let the, the fears of the, of the culture come sometimes dictate how we do things. And, and ultimately, I think it's from pure motive for us, though. It's not just in fear of the culture. Like, we, we've always wanted to make more to do about, about the communion, uh, about our time of communion, about the communion platter. We want, make, make, we want to make more to do week in and week out about the communion tray than we do the offering plate, right? And so, and, and there, there are churches that, that they pass the offering plate every week, but pass the communion plate once a month or once a quarter. And to those churches, I would say, maybe you're emphasizing the wrong thing. And so um, a lot of our practices of what we do as a church is, is, is because of that. And so this morning, we do, I am gonna talk about generosity. I am gonna talk about giving. My grandfather would have said this. He would have said, how many of you here this morning? How many of you believe in the hereafter? Let's see a show of your hands. If you here are here with us this morning and you don't have to raise your hands, you, you, you're here, you, you believe in the hereafter. And then he would follow it up by, okay, get those checkbooks and those wallets out because that's what I'm hereafter. That's what he would have said. And I won't be nearly that, that bold as to say that, but I will say this, that we're, we're in a series where we've been talking about discipleship and what it means to be a disciple. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? And because Jesus talked about giving, we should be talking about giving. And in this latter part, what we're talking about is a collection of disciples coming together. That's what the church is. Like we said that, you know, we were taught early on, this is the church and this is its steeple and open the door and here's all its people. And we said, that's some misconception of what the church is. The church is the people. And so now in this latter part of this series in discipleship, what we're talking about is what is the culture of the people coming together? Then in fact, we could start here. We said this last week that gospel doctrine should lead to gospel culture. And so let me quickly, as I, if I can, the time define the terms. The first term that's two times is the word gospel. What do we mean by the word gospel? Well, simply this, the gospel is good news. It's good news for sinners like you and I, that through the, the bodily, through, through the substitutionary death, the bodily resurrection, I forgot one, through the perfect life, the substitutionary death, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, that you and I can be forgiven of all our sin. Goodness, that's good news. And not just forgiven of all our sin, that because of who Jesus is, and as Jesus ascends on high, as soon as Jesus gets into the, the, back into the heavenlies with his Father, as soon as he sits down on a throne, Jesus turns around as an example and as a picture of Jesus' own generosity. Jesus gives again, and he gives the Spirit. So that when you and I, when we believe in Christ and we believe in his gospel, we're forgiven of our sin, but we're also filled with his Holy Spirit that empowers us and gives us new life. That it's not just like a doctrine, right? So gospel, that's the gospel, the good news. And, but the good news isn't just that it is a doctrine, although it is a doctrine. What I mean by doctrine is just a system of beliefs, 
Everybody has a doctrine when it comes to Jesus. Either you have a good and right and biblical doctrine, or you have a a wrong, incorrect, erroneous doctrine that is based upon make-believe and figments of your imagination. At the end of that doctrine, it may be a a God that you feel like you serve, but if it's not the God of the Bible, it's simply a figment of your imagination. It's simply a pretend God. It's simply a, a, you know, an imaginary friend that you may have, that you may talk to, and you may feel even that he talks back to you, like my little girl has imaginary friends, but it is not the God of the Bible. But the God of the Bible, and we say that because the God, the one God has revealed himself in the Bible. So we have to go to the Bible and learn about who God is because that's where he's revealed himself. So gospel doctrine, it's, it's what we come to know about the gospel. It's what we believe about Jesus. And as we rightly believe the things about Jesus, of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, it should shape us. It should create in our lives this new life, it should create a culture. So what is the culture of the Point Community Church? What's the atmosphere? What's the feel? What's the intangibles when someone's invited into your home or gets even near you, or someone is invited here into this gathering, a community group gathering, a discipleship group gathering? What are we like when they come in? And what we said is uh, every organization, every family has a culture. That may be an intentional or unintentional, but every group and gathering of people, there's a, there's a culture present. Like to, to express like a, what would be a, um, an intentional or an unintentional kind of culture is a, think about restaurants, if you will. And I use this illustration in shepherd school. Like I just notice as I, as I go from, especially like fast food restaurant to fast food restaurant, like each restaurant kind of has its own culture. And sometimes you ask the question, is the culture of this restaurant, your experience there, is this intentional or unintentional? Now, like for example, Hardee's. Does anybody here work for Hardee's? Now, just to keep all things equal, I will eat at this Hardee's on the east side. I will eat there at least once this week, if not twice. I could walk into Hardee's and they could say, hey, we've got hepatitis. And I would say, I'll take a number two, right? That's just like, man, when you crave Hardee's, like nothing else will do. But I would say there's a part of Hardee's that creates a very unintentional culture. Like I very much doubt in their employee handbook, it says mix your mop water with also the the hamburger fat and then mop the floor with it. Like, have you ever been in there? It's like, sometimes it's like skating on ice. It's like, you know, let me skate my way to the counter. Like I doubt anywhere in the employee handbook, it says it's a good idea when employees are present for two employees in the back to get into a fight. (laughs) It's probably not in there. But there's an unintentional culture about not just this Hardee's. I don't know about you, but I used to travel all over Kentucky. And I would say it's an unintentional culture that is in every Hardee's that I've ever been in. It's just, it's just there. And we could then look at a restaurant like Chick-fil-A and see that's a very intentional culture being built. The employees, it doesn't matter who they, I mean, you know, my pleasure, my pleasure, my pleasure, my pleasure. There's an intentional culture that's being built there and being trained there. And you can even fast forward that one time for my, uh, mine and Luann's anniversary, we went to New York City. It's been several years ago, but we went and we ate at a restaurant underneath the Brooklyn Bridge. It was so expensive. It was so expensive, we couldn't enjoy our meal. Like we knew how expensive it was, but we just were sitting there like, are you kidding? And like, you know, it was a restaurant where they came over and like there were three waiters just standing there for you to do something. I don't know. 
But they came over with a little broom and swept the crumbs after we ate bread, swept the crumbs off of our table. When Luann got up to go to the restroom, the, the, the waiter came over and folded her napkin back up and laid it. And I was like, hey, hey, don't touch her napkin. No, no, this is what we do, you know? <laughs> Kentucky goes to New York City. And the whole point of what we've been saying last week and this week that I want us to understand is this, that the gospel, when it's rightly believed, gospel doctrine, when we rightly know who Jesus is, what Jesus has done for us, it should revolutionize our lives and it should change our lives to the degree that when you and I are together, there's a difference in here. And that difference is felt and it should be congruent to the declarations of the gospel. So the gospel is making us holy people. So when someone's invited into your life, your life should be marked by a sense of holiness, a purity. That means you don't participate in telling dirty jokes and using foul language like your pagan co-workers do. There should be a difference about you, a purity about you. You should make crass and crude remarks about men. I know how you ladies are, right? There should be a difference in your life, a purity about your life. There should be a humility about your life. If all of the gospel is a declaration of who God is and what God has done and how God has saved you, like where is there any room for you to brag about you? You don't see a God who, you know. no, there's a humility in us. There's a hospitality in us. That's what we talked about last week, Romans 15, seven. In the same way that God has welcomed you, now you welcome one another to the glory of God. Like as we are hospitable and welcoming people, inviting people into our home, welcoming people into this sphere, into our community groups, into our discipleship groups, as we're doing that, that we are glorifying God in that and we're putting the gospel on display in that. And then this morning, I wanna talk about generosity, that it makes us generous. Like think for just a moment at how God has been to you. How has God been to you? And again, the gospel is creating this idea of generosity. The gospel is what's setting all of this. And when you think about the gospel, that for God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his only begotten son. How has God been to you? Has God been like this to you? Or has God been like this to you? Think about your life and where you live and what you get to do and what you get to experience and think about your health and think about your forgiveness and think about your money and think about like your abilities and think about everything that has flowed from God and how then would you describe God's activity in your life? Would you describe it like this or would you describe it like this? Giving or withholding? Pouring out, that's the open hand, or holding back? How would you describe it? And if, if you would say, this describes how God's been in my life, my goodness gracious, I don't deserve all that the Lord has given me. Some of you who are Dave Ramsey fans, and I'll call you on the phone, I'll say, how are you doing today? And some of you will say, better than I deserve. What you're saying in that is that God has been like this to me. And here's the point. If God has been like this to you, how can you live out your life being like this, both to him and to others? If you understand the gospel, that in the gospel, God has been like this, then how can you live your life like this? And that's the whole point of where we are going. Last week, we said it's like this, that what we experience vertically coming down, we should extend 
horizontally going out. Kindness, goodness, love, hospitality, generosity. We've experienced all of that vertically, and now we should extend that horizontally and also vertically back to God. That we said this last week, a right understanding of the gospel should inform and give shape to our reality and our real human relationships. Now, this text, Paul's writing here back to the church at Corinth. And this text, it starts actually in verse number eight, and we'll look at one verse in that. But in chapter eight and chapter nine of 2 Corinthians, it's all about money. But I wanna talk, when I talk about generosity, I wanna talk in much broader terms. That when I say that the gospel makes us generous, that generosity, biblical generosity, extends way beyond, extends way beyond our, 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 our finances and our money. That here's the truth, that our lives, as those who know the Lord, who walk in the Lord, that our lives are not to be lived to the, to the edges. That godly living, right living, always includes margins in our lives. Like, think about this for a second. Go back all the way to the book of Genesis. The first time the word holy is used in the Bible is not used to describe God or his Bible or his son or anything. The first time the word holy, so the concept of something being holy, it's something that is set apart from everything else. It's something that's been consecrated by God, blessed by God, and it's to be separate. And the first time the word holy is used in the Bible is in reference to the Sabbath. God creates and God creates in six days. And on the seventh day, on the day, the Sabbath day, God, God rests. And so the first thing we see is a pattern being set up about margins in our lives. That for six days, we're to engage in work and we're to do. And then on the seventh day, there's to be margin of our time put in place so that you and I can rest, so that you and I can worship, so that you and I can have concentrated, focused times on two things, on the Lord and on resting and being at rest. That's margins in our lives. Think about it in, you could look, read in the, in the law, how God set up for the people of God, how they were even to take care of their lands and to cultivate their fields. You build out a field and you cultivate it, but then God says this, in the harvest, there's the, there's the offering that goes, but even in the way that you harvest your fields, harvest your fields and such that you leave a margin in your field around the edges so that the poor among you may come and partake of some of the harvest there that our lives continuously are to be built upon this idea of margins. And the same thing extends into our money. Then in the law, there's the tithe that is set up. 90% you get to keep, but 10% belongs unto the Lord. That many of us though, we don't live our lives according to margin. Many of us, we live our lives in every facet and in every way, all the way completely into the edges and maybe even beyond that we see in the fall, God sets up, and again, he blesses the life that includes margins. And then the fall happens. And in the fall, work becomes work. Like there's work and meaningful work. And for those in the room who are prone to doing and prone to task, this helps us in our understanding of heaven. Like thankfully, we're not gonna be riding around on, mush, you know, on marshmallow clouds, riding unicorns playing 
harps and all be, you know, with diapers on. Like that's not heaven, right? Heaven, I think there will be some meaningful work in heaven, some things for us to do because we see that in God's first creation. So certainly I think it'll be true in his new creation, but there may be meaningful work to do. But what happens in the fall is toil enters in. Now we will work, but it'll be by the sweat of our brow that we will go to work. And so we have this new type of lifestyle. A lifestyle now, I think, where there was no margins, but the people of God are being redeemed from the fall. We're being redeemed into living as God has always intended for us to live, which always, I believe, it includes margins. Let me just ask you, and we'll start here. When's the last time you genuinely took a day off and rested as an act of worship? Are there margins in your life Are there margins for rest? Are there margins, spaces for you to serve and to serve others? And then what about your finances? Are you living them to their edges and beyond? Or is there margin? Is there margin in your finances? Margins to give and margins to bless. This is the part where like I was saying earlier about new life, that in generosity, God isn't just living as an example of of generosity and say, hey, try to be like me and try to give. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now you go and be givers. Like that's a part of it. Certainly he's being our example in how we are to give. He's being an example to us in generosity. But more than that, on top of that, in his generosity, he's poured out the Holy Spirit to us that is a real active power enabling us to live as agents of God, enabling us to fulfill the law of God, enabling us with real new desires to love the Lord and to walk in new obedience to him, to reorder our lives. That the Spirit with a real power and real means is working inside of you, breaking your sinful and selfish disposition imparting wisdom to you to know how you are to live and how you are to handle your finances. One of the means, if not the primary means that the spirit is at work in your life though is what's happening right now. It's when we are reading the Bible and we are studying the Bible and we're looking as Paul describes it. He says that, the, that God's word is like a mirror and we're looking into the mirror and the mirror is showing us God's image for our lives and it's reflecting back to us our image. And so as we look into the word, we gotta think about, am I living, is my life in congruence to what I'm reading here? So as you're reading in 2 Corinthians chapter nine and what you're seeing is Paul expounding the folks in the, in the church in Corinth who are cheerful givers, You think God loves and God blesses a cheerful giver. And then you got to look in the mirror and look back at your life. You got to say, am I a cheerful giver? Am I a cheerful giver? Do I give or am I reluctantly giving or I don't give or I don't know how to give or I have no room to give. And then if you say, no, my life is not living in congruence to this, then you have opportunity to do this, to repent. And what repentance is, is simply to change. It's It's to reorder your life. And seriously here, seriously, for some of you, what repentance looks like, it looks like you canceling your afternoon plans and going home and taking a nap to the glory of God. You've worked all week and well, if I don't take care of it, listen, you're not God. You can't take care of everything. Like God knows, like if God said on the seventh day I rested, were you better than God? What you got to do is more important than what God has to do. 
And maybe you just need to rest. I mean, I know how hard it is. I grew up in a home where my dad is an entrepreneur. We always, he always was working. Always, always, always. And I grew up under that. And I'm prone to task. And sometimes resting is tough. But we need to rest to the glory of God. It's a gift that for some of you at the end of this gathering, what repentance looks like, it looks like you taking your credit card out and cutting it up. Did you bring your shredder? Don Noble's got a shredder and he's got pounds of shredded credit cards. And maybe that's what it looks like. Because, no, I, I, I can't. I can't stop here. I'm living my life all the way to the edges and beyond. Maybe you need help in that. In fact, early in 2019, we will offer Dave Ramsey's class on financial peace. And man, go get part of that class to help you to reorder your lives and reorder your finances. And for some of you, repentance today may look like reordering your family budget in order to include giving and blessing others. The idea of repentance is the backbone of the reformational movement. It's one of the backbones, maybe I should say. It's the first in the 95 Thesis. So when Martin Luther goes to correct theology, the theology of the Catholic Church, he, he hammers on this church door, a church in, in Wittenberg, in Wittenberg, Germany, 95 Theses. And the first thesis was not salvation by faith, even though he corrects that. It wasn't the idea of priesthood of the believer, although he corrects it. The first one that kind of is the backbone, the foundation is the idea of repentance. That what the Catholic church thought repentance was, was something that happened to them way back in history. There was a one-time event that happened. And listen, the Baptists, we're like that. We think repentance happens when we came forward and shook a pastor's hand and prayed a prayer and followed up by getting dunked. And that is not what biblical repentance is. In fact, Luther said this, Luther said that when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. All of our lives we're walking in repentance. We're walking out our repentance and we're walking in repentance because we're constantly coming to God's word and we're seeing the incongruencies in our own hearts and our own lives. And repentance is admission that I'm not living like God wants me to live. It's confessing that. It's admitting that. And then it's bringing about a change in your life. It's saying, I'm gonna walk and long for new obedience in that. And that's where like reordering your budget, giving becomes that. Am I living generously? And if you're not, then it's trying to live generously. In fact, Luther also said this, it's not in the 95 Theses, but this will show you how Luther felt about money. Luther said that every person must be converted in three areas. There must be a conversion of his mind. There must be a conversion of his heart. And there must be a conversion that takes place in his purse. So must have been talking to the ladies, right? Or wallets. A head, the heart, and to the purse. All right, let's get into the text because at the end of the day, I long to be an expositor of the, te- of the text and not just uh, a guy that stands up here and yells. Okay, Look with me, if you will, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. But first, let's start. Everything that Paul is saying hinges upon what he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, Paul says this. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty, you might become rich. And nine then flows out of that. 
that I, if, I hope is what I've been saying over and over again, that knowing the grace of Jesus, knowing the gospel, that is the engine of our generosity. That when Paul says here that Jesus was made poor on our behalf or for us, he's not talking about finances. This is a summary statement of the incarnation of Christ, of what we celebrate at Christmas. Then when Paul said, when I think about the second person of the Trinity, the pre-existent, always existent, omnipresent, omniscient God, the second person, the Son, coming to this earth and becoming human, it's like an incredibly rich man emptying all of his riches and becoming poor. C.S. Lewis said it would be equivalent that if we could somehow measure the equivalence of who God, who Jesus was and who Jesus became and being born in a manger, it would be equivalent to you, a human being, becoming a slug. That's the level that we're talking about here. And look at what Paul says. Why did Jesus do this? Why did Jesus empty himself of all of his riches and come and live this life for us in order that you and I might become rich for what? And it's right there, three words, for your sake for your sake. And that's the hinge for everything as we see this, as we look at here in just a second, principles for godly and generous living. This is the hinge verse of it here. It is knowing that it is for your sake that Christ became poor so that you, by knowing Christ, you could become rich. Now let's look at these quickly. If you will, back over on 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 14. I have a couple I will not tell you how many, less than 20, but couple of principles for godly, generous giving. Before I get to those, let me just preface it by saying the goal, the goal in generous living is to glorify God. That's the goal. What's the goal? Why do I give? Why do we take up an offering? Ultimately, ultimately it's to glorify God. The kind of glory that Paul is describing here, it's thanksgiving to God. That as we receive from God, who is a supplier, we give thanksgiving to God. And as we give to others, as they receive, they give thanksgiving to God. And at the end of the day, man is not elevated. It's not just that needs are met, but ultimately the goal is that God is glorified. And that's what generosity should work. It should work in such a way that it produces thanksgiving to God. And that is one of the places that the prosperity gospel gets it so wrong. Number one, the first principle for godly giving. You see this in verse number six. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Very clever Point number one is very clever on my own take. I will say that. It's simply this. Sow sparingly, reap sparingly. Sow generously, reap generously. Now, this is where the jokers on TBN get it wrong. They take this and they say, this is God's plan for getting rich. And it is not. And the fear with false, listen, the fear with false teachers isn't that everything they say is wrong. The scary part with false teachers is some of what they say is right. Now, this happens to be one of the places where they're wrong. I mean, yeah, where they're wrong. But there's some things that they say that is right. And some of you will say, you know what? I've heard Joyce Meyer say X, Y, and Z. Do you disagree with that? And I'd say, I don't disagree with her on that. She's right. 
And what I tell folks when they say that is, when I worked for my dad's sewer company, one time I found a gold ring in the sewer system. Like, I, literally, I found a gold ring through the sewer system. And so you can, I can say, as a matter of fact, you can find gold rings in the sewer systems. But there's a whole lot better places to find gold rings than sifting through the sewers. As long as there's jewelry stores out there, why would you spend your time sifting in the sewers? And the same thing is true. When there's great teachers who 99.9% of what they say is biblically accurate and biblically true, so why would you sift through the sewer to find a gold ring? But here is one of the places where they get it wrong that their understanding of sowing and reaping and sowing generously and reaping generously is to get rich. It's to make money. And this isn't God's financial plan for success. This right here in what he's saying in 2 Corinthians, this is not God's plan for financial success. Now, some of you need some help in your finances. And I've been there and I understand what that looks like. So let me give you some help in your finances. Let me give for you as way of a side note, quickly, Andy, let me give you God's plan for financial success. Here it is. It's from the book of Proverbs. I won't give you all the chapters and verses and addresses. You can find them on your own. But here's God's plan for success, for financial success. It looks like this. Number one, work hard. Number two, give generously. Number three, spend and invest wisely. And number four, save prudently. No shortcuts with God. You want to know how to have financial success? How do I reorder my finances? My finances are out of whack. We're in debt up to our eyeballs, right? Remember that commercial? That's us. We're living in that. I can't give because I'm, I, I'm living beyond my means. Well, here, let me help you. Work hard. Give generously. Spend and invest wisely. Save prudently. What Paul's getting at when he says, sow sparingly, reap sparingly, sow generously, reap generously, it's just a principle of life. It's what every farmer in here knows. It's what every gardener in here knows. It's what everybody that has a flower bed in the front of their house knows. That whatever you sow, that's what you're going to reap. That if you sow, right, the farmer who sows seeds sparingly, he will reap a meager harvest. But the one who sows bountifully, he's gonna reap bountifully. That's the principle. If you plant three tulip bulbs in your front yard, you're probably only gonna get three tulip plants growing up. But if you plant 100 tulip bulbs in your yard, guess what you will reap? You're going to reap 100 tulip bulbs. And that's the principle is transferred into the kingdom of God. That giving into the kingdom of God results in blessings. That's literally what the word bountiful means there. It's the same word as blessing. If you sow into the kingdom of God, your results will be blessings from God. And those blessings are both tangible and intangible. Those who sow generously, you're going to reap blessings. Those who sow sparingly, those who hold back selfishly, fearing loss, you're not going to experience the blessing of blessing others. That's number one. Number two, generosity is a matter of the heart. Verse number seven. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The generosity that is not begin with a full checking account. But generosity begins with a full heart. That ultimately generosity is an overflow of faith in the fullness of God being displayed in our finances. Think about Jesus for a minute. Jesus never worried about money. And it wasn't that he didn't worry about money because he was all powerful although he was. 
Jesus could have in his temptation, he could have turned stones into bread. He chose not to, not to put God to the test. When we see a glimpse of Jesus's power whenever the temple tax is due and he tells Peter to, you know, throw out and catch a fish and he reels it in and there's a coin in its mouth. Uh, I've caught some fish, not a lot of fish, um, but I've seen other people like Michael Scott catch a lot of fish, but I would say neither one of us have ever caught a fish with a coin in its mouth. Like that was a miracle that Jesus did. But that wasn't the basis for Jesus not worrying about money. Why did Jesus not worry about money? The same reason he taught his disciples not to worry about money. is because Jesus knew the heart of the Father. That's ultimately why he wasn't anxious about finances. That's what he told his disciples. Ultimately, God loves you. God cares for you. God will look out for you. And when you and I, when we, when our hearts know the Father's heart, when our hearts know his great love and his great concern, then we move into being able to be givers. The giving is a matter of the heart, not a matter of the calculator. In fact, that is a great verse for us to understand how we are to, to give. Look at what Paul says as he writes to the church in Corinth. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. There's the heart piece, but look, there's a decision that our giving is to be personally determined. It's not reluctant giving. It's not under compulsion. There's a, but it's through faith in God and obedience to God and from a love of God. That's what fuels our giving. It's not arm twisting or sob stories that motivate our giving, but there should be a right, logical, faith-filled decision made. Well, we're gonna give whatever we've got left. I don't know about you, but I never have any left. I'm the country song. My life has always been the country song of I got too much month at the end of the money, right? That's how we live that you all think about that. That's a real song. Some of you recognize it. That's how we live. And so we have to do this. We have to determine ahead of time, how are we gonna give? How much are we gonna, when are we? All of those things. Next, look at this. Giving is to be generous and cheerful. Not stingy, but generous. Not begrudgingly, but cheerful. In fact, the word Paul uses there is the word uh, hilaron. It's the word to which we get hilarious from. Like some of you are thinking, finally, pastor, you just said something that I agree with because it's hilarious if you think I'm giving any money to this church. Like I know some of you think that, but that's not what Paul meant by saying that. What he's saying is there should be a hilarity to our giving. Like we should give so much that when the outside world like was to hear about it or know it, like there's a hilarious factor or hilarious dimension and in, in, in how we give and what we give to and the way that we give. So it should be personally determined, it should be generous, and it should be cheerful. Hilarious, I love that. Number three, contentment comes from God and not from finances. We'll just leave that one out there for a second. Contentment. Isn't that what we're after? Enough? just enough. But it seems like it's such a, an illusion. It seems like it's the proverbial carrot on the stick that we never can get. But the problem isn't in finances. The problem is in our hearts. Look at what Paul says. And God is able to make, who's able? Not finances is able. Not when you have enough. Not money is able. Look, and money is able to make. No, 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 no. That's not what he says. Oh, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. 
Like that's what we're after is contentment, enough. But again, the problem isn't with finances. The problem is with our hearts and only God can break that. Only God can change our hearts. In fact, I brought with me a, a book that I haven't read all this book. I only read parts of this book. This book is called uh, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It's by a guy by the name of Jeremiah Burroughs. And first of all, I would notice the title, The Rare Jewel. That Christian contentment, being enough, being satisfied, having enough, he says, is a rare jewel in our hearts. It's a rare virtue in our hearts. And he wrote this book on it. And this book was written in 1648. And in 1648, Jeremiah Burroughs called contentment, Christian contentment, a rare jewel. Fast forward and look at where we are today. We're a very discontented people. We constantly have images thrown at us called commercials of new things that we need and why we shouldn't be contented because a new iPhone came out, right? A new iPad came out, a new car came out, a new, a new, a new, a new. And that's the proverbial, Christian contentment isn't the carrot on the stick. The world's brand of buy this junk is what the carrot on the stick. Their promise of happiness is the carrot on the stick. That the writer of Proverbs, I mean, again, this is the wisdom language. This is what, in his wisdom, this is what he says. He says, God, give me neither poverty nor, give me poverty nor give me riches. Because here's why, you give me riches and I may forget you. I may forget to be thankful to you, but give me neither poverty because I may have to steal bread in order to feed my family and sin against you. So God, my prayer to you is give me neither. Just give me enough. And here's the absolute truth. We all have enough. I'm preaching this sermon in Frankfort, Kentucky, not in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. Andy, you have enough. Yeah, starts here. You got enough, bro. But I really want that new gun and new truck and new, new, new. Oh, you don't need it, bro. You got enough. Give. <clears throat> All right. Running out of time. Let me, let me give you, uh, let me move forward. We'll lump and I'll, and I'll move forward. In verse number 10, let me read the rest of the text. And then, um, and then we'll, um, I'll give you the next 19 points and we'll be done. He who supplies seed to the sower, that's God, and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. That's what he's after. Which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. See that? Thanksgiving to God is being produced. Oh, we rejoice at that. That's what we're after. God's being glorified in this. For the ministry, that's key word of this service, is not only just to supply the needs of the saints, but it's overflowing and many thanksgivings to God that by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Number four, the fourth principle is this. God's money is your money. And your money is God's money. Where's God's money right now? 
is not just in the checking account of all the churches in the world. It's in your checking account too. Do you want to see some of God's money? Don Noble, let me have your wallet. No, I'm joking. <laughs> right? That's God's money. That's God's money. And listen, your money, God's money is your money and your money is God's money. And I know what you're thinking because I would think the same thing. Wait a minute. No, 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 no. You don't understand. I worked hard for my money. I'm the one who went to school and went and made good grades and studied and went to college and passed and paid off my school debts. God didn't show up and write that check to, well, who is it that owns all that? Sally Mae, is that who owns the, who gives the, is that right? Sally Mae, God didn't show up and write that check to Sally Mae. It's me, I'm the one writing every month still to Sally Mae and God didn't help me get this job and God's not the one that shows up at work. I'm the one, but listen, listen, I understand that and I believe you, but there's something that's very vital to you that belongs to God that he gives you. All of you are using it right now. And it's called oxygen. You can't make money. You can't go to school. You can't do anything without oxygen. And where does oxygen come from? Not you. The trees. And whose idea was that? God's. That God has created you and made you dependent, not independent. So that in everything, you can see that God is a supplier and you are a recipient. You get, God gives, you get. And so everything comes ultimately from God. So the first thing, God's money is your money, your money is God's money. God owns it, God supplies it. And if God says in his word that you are to be generous with it and to give it, it's already his. And that, that also means you can't outgive God. That also means that, that God's never impressed with your giving. C.S. Lewis wrote a book, uh, Sixpence None the Richer, that, man, you, you give your kids money and they go out and buy you a Christmas gift and they come back. Like, you're really no the, none richer from that because you paid for it. In the same way, God is supplying, God is giving to you. Number five, you do not give to the church, but you give through the church. And this is ministry. This is ministry. That's what Paul's doing here. There's a great need in Jerusalem. The saints in Jerusalem are having a hard time and they're, they're, they're literally, they're, they're hungry. There's a great need there. And what Paul is doing is Paul's collecting money from Corinth. He's collecting money from Macedonia and then he's gonna give it. He's gonna distribute those funds to the saints in need in Jerusalem. It's through this collection of funds that needs are met. And it's through a collection of funds here that real needs are met. Pastor's needs are met. Churches' needs are met. Churches are planted. Missionaries are funded. Those in genuine need and want, their needs are met. Goodness. Like we as a church, we try to operate on a very simplistic, very frugal budget. Not an inflated budget, but we genuinely also with our finances together as we collect them, we look for ways to bless others by our finances. That's what we're after. Number six. Generosity is a confession of the gospel. And that's the last one. The generosity is, as Paul says here, it is a confession of the gospel. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. So there's a submission because of your confession that shows up in your wallet. And the generosity of your, of your contribution for them and for others. 
that as we give and give generously, it confesses our submission to Christ. It confesses our dependence upon Christ. And it confesses that we believe that all blessings flow from Christ to us and through us. Very simply, God gives, give back. Let's pray. That is what we will celebrate in just a second. At the coming to your table, your institution of the Lord's Supper that has been given for us, we will celebrate the fact, Lord, that you give and you call us to give back. As we collect an offering, it's a reminder that you give and we give back. And I pray, Lord, that we can just put into practice what we've just heard and that some of us may need to walk in repentance. Some of us may need to get home and take the next month to reorder our finances and to figure out ways that we can give. Some of us may need to tighten the belt, spend less in order to give more, Lord. But I pray that, and I pray that's a work of the Spirit, not, not the congealing of a pastor, but genuinely as an overflow of the work of the gospel, the power of the Spirit, our desire to be submitted to your word. It's in your name we pray, amen.